Welcome to ResearchPod. As global populations live generally longer lives, societies and healthcare systems are having to reckon with an increasingly visible number of neurodegenerative diseases. Think Alzheimer's, dementia, and Huntington's disease, to name but a few. Out of those, Huntington's disease is characterized by a clear line of heritability within families and an early onset of disease towards the middle of one's life. As such, the more knowledge researchers gain about early disease development, the sooner interventions may be developed, and the longer their benefits may be felt. I'm speaking today with Dr. Jessica Cow about her research into the onset of Huntington's disease in a mouse model, how the sex-dependent differences seen in mice may reflect in humans, and prospects of future therapies to improve the well-being of patients facing the disease. And joining me is Dr. Cow. Hello. Hi. Could you tell us about your research? What kind of led you to this end of clinical biology and what it is that you're working on? So as a kid, I was always interested in diseases in the body. And just through college, I started getting more interested in specifically drugs and how drugs affect the body. Um, and so that kind of led me into my PhD research, specifically looking at neurological diseases, um, such as Huntington's. And so I had this great opportunity in my PhD lab to study different animal models of Huntington's disease to look at disease progression in these animals and how that manifests into behavioral phenotypes. And so it was just a really great learning experience seeing how changes in the brain occurred and behavioral phenotypes that came out of that and tracking those and studying those and then looking for possible therapeutics to treat these diseases. And before we get any further, there's every chance that someone listening to this might not know what Huntington's disease is. Could we start with kind of a, a quick summary of how we understand that it comes about and how it presents as a disease? Yeah. So Huntington's disease is actually described a long time ago, back in the late 1800s. And it was first described based on some prominent clinical signs. So it's a neurodegenerative disease that's inherited. And these patients, kind of in their later age, they develop very specific movement um, abnormalities. Um, Huntington's disease used to be called Huntington's chorea. So they would have really uncontrolled jerky motions. They had instability and incoordination. And so physicians really noticed this. And a young physician named George Huntington was the first to, to write about it and discuss it. And then later, around 1993, they identified that it was caused by a genetic mutation in a gene that's actually really important for the body and development. And they found um, this one section of the gene that has a certain a section of DNA that's repeated. And it's okay that it's repeated less than 30 times, but over 30 times, they found that this develops into Huntington's disease. It's called uh, trinucleotide repeat. So Huntington's disease is what's known as a polyglutamine disease. Glutamine is a um, set of amino acids in your DNA. So it is repeated in your gene. And in normal circumstances, healthy adults have less than 30. But with our research, we found that if the repeats go above 30, 
that's when you develop Huntington's disease. And so we'll frequently refer to that expansion as poly-Q or polyglutamine. And this causes the protein to pretty much malfunction. It'll glob up into big chunks where it's not supposed to, and it'll connect to other proteins um, that it's not supposed to, or it'll not do the things that it's supposed to do. And so it was actually a really great breakthrough. A large collaborative group um, launched this study and they found, they identified this gene. And with that, um, we're now able to make genetic models that really replicate the source and the cause of this disease and to map it out and to treat it or manipulate it, um, just to really study it because we know exactly what is causing it. That being said, because Huntington is such an important gene and protein that's involved in so many different things in the body, that leads to kind of a whole list of things that are going wrong. And so it was kind of the first start, the first puzzle piece that we needed to get started with the research. And now there's kind of a laundry list of things that we could look into for therapeutics and treating a number of different symptoms mostly the motor problems, but also can lead to cognitive problems, um, psychiatric problems, and also a number of other uh, problems in like the peripheral, like such as cardiac failure, weight loss, um, things like that. And when it comes to studying the genetic aspect of that, then that leads on to a specific line of you said that it could just be abbreviated to HD mice? HDHQ200. It is quite a mouthful. Um, identifying the Huntington gene and starting to develop different animal models that could replicate Huntington's disease. So the first models, they just inserted the Huntington gene with the mutated expansion. And so... The first mouse models, they just inserted a bacterial gene or a yeast gene that had an extend, expanded polyglutamine uh, track. And so these animals did show some behavioral symptoms, but they mostly either all died way too quickly or they lived the full um, normal lifespan of a mouse, which is about two years old. Humans that have Huntington's, they develop symptoms around be like 40, 50, kind of depending on how large their polyglutamine tract is. Then they typically die 15 to 20 years after their symptoms um, start to show. And so they have this shortened lifespan due to the disease. And so we really needed a model that accurately replicated that. It had kind of an early onset of symptoms within a mouse lifespan, and it also died a little bit earlier. What's really great about this new model, the HDHQ mouse model, is that instead of just inserting genes into the mouse, what researchers did is that they took the mouse homologue to the Huntington gene, so the mouse version of the Huntington gene, and then they inserted the polyglutamines into that, and then put that back into the mouse. And so this mouse model didn't have any foreign genes. This was part of its own genome. And it had the normal two copies of the Huntington gene. 
in which the other models would have three copies because they would have their normal Huntington gene and then this inserted gene that carried the polyglutamine expansion. That way, in the HDHQ mouse, the Huntington gene was regulated in the normal fashion. And so it really genetically mirrored what happened in humans. So as close to natural Huntington's as a mouse is likely to get. Right, exactly. And the reason why in the mouse models we have to put 150, 200, 250 polyglutamines, that's what the number refers to. The reason we have to do that is because Huntington's disease is a protein aggregate disease. So kind of similar to like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, the Huntington protein will glob up. So they aggregate, they form clumps either with itself or other proteins. And that takes time. And so to essentially shrink the process that occurs in a human over 60 years, um, shrink it down to two years in a mouse, that's why we have to put so many um, polyglutamines into its genome in order to be able to study it within the two-year lifespan of the mouse. And so that's what the HDHQ200 refers to. And that's something that I think is always important to mention there is that, you know, if we did want to just work with purely willing human test subjects, the timescale for coming up with any insights or treatments is going to be exponentially longer, and that's a value that no other living organism is going to be able to replicate quite like the mouse model. Exactly. And especially with neurodegenerative diseases, we really are interested in this behavioral outcome. And so because this disease was discovered based on the behavioral abnormalities of these patients, we need to be able to have a model that not only has the same cause of the disease, but also shows the right symptoms. So we know that, you know, if we're treating it or trying to figure out treating this disease, are the symptoms being rescued? You can't really take a dish of cells and ask, are you depressed? Or, you know, are you able to walk okay? (laughs) So for this study, we had a colony of mice that either had both of their Huntington gene copies had a polyglutamine expansion of 200, or within that same litter, we had what we call wild type, um, which these animals had the normal um, amount of polyglutamine in their Huntington gene. And so um, with both males and females, because we're interested in studying uh, both sexes, we just ran through a gamut of behavioral tests to see their disease progression. And so I just tested them at different intervals, mainly six, uh, eight, 10, and 12 months to see where they started uh, getting sick. And interestingly, the females uh, consistently were more sick than the males. They started showing problems in their just normal movement, uh, which we call locomotion. They had problems in their grip. Um, So we kind of timed how long they could hold on to a wire. We also just looked at their general weight, in which the females were always smaller than the wild type females. One of the main tests for Huntington's um, is motor coordination. So we put them on a little rod that 
uh, spins slowly and we just time how long they can hold on. Mice generally can hang on to a rotating rod fairly well, but the Huntington's mice um, pretty early on weren't able to hang on as long. By the time that they were 12 months, they kind of reached what we call like a more bound stage where our vets let us know like these animals are just too small and too sick. And that's what we call end stage of this disease in the mouse model. The uh, the mouse equivalent of it's time to take them to a farm where they can play with lots of other mice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in terms of corresponding that to what's known about Huntington's in people is the difference in presentation and disease progression seen in the mouse model expected? Yeah, so we were fairly surprised um, to see that the females were more sick than the males, but then looking into the little research that has been done in in humans, um, there have been a few studies that saw Huntington's patients that were women had a more severe showing of symptoms also um, compared to men. And and that was still the case even when they corrected for the number of polyglutamines that the patient had. And so that was really surprising to see that our, our mouse model was very similar to what we were seeing is going on in humans. And then a more recent study has shown that there's a significantly higher prevalence of Huntington's disease in women than men. And so that there could really be a more severe Huntington's pathological process that occurs in women. There have been other studies in other related diseases, spinocerebellar ataxia. Um, it's a very similar hereditary disease that also affects movement. It's also higher prevalence in women than men. And there have been other studies that have found gender differences in other movement disorders like Parkinson's and dystonia, that there could be correlations with the menstrual cycle suggesting impacts um, from estrogen, because there have been a little bit of studies in animal models showing that mutant Huntington, so the mutated Huntington protein, does affect estrogen levels in these mice. And so clearly <laughs> there seems to be a, a sex difference in Huntington's disease. Now you mentioned that there wasn't very much in the way of research literature for human presentation of the disease. Any ideas why that might be for a disease that's been reported for over 100 years? I was kind of expecting yeah. there to be more, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, this kind of been just a more recent thing to look at sex differences more closely. The National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. that kind of run the majority of academic research um, started requiring researchers to study both male and female animals. And more in the preclinical field with like animal models and things like that. But I know in animal research, it's always easier it, to research uh, male mice because male mice don't have menstrual cycles. You don't have to worry about um, large changes in hormone uh, levels throughout the month. So you don't have to you know, test at the same time every month. And so a lot of studies were always first done in, in male mice. And so in terms of just human research, um, 
I, I would say because this is a um, protein aggregate disease that again takes so much time, it's difficult to do these studies on Huntington's patients because symptoms span 20 some years. You can't really get into the, the nitty gritty as well uh, with human patients. And it does raise the question of how many other diseases have unmentioned gender-specific links or hormone-specific links that have just kind of been underserved by having a uh, a predisposition to using male mice. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm sure. I mean, uh, on a side note, like being in science, like there's so many questions out there, and you're like, someone has to be studying it, and they may very well be but there's also a lot of untouched topics and questions out there too so studying hormones is quite difficult a colleague of mine she was trying to study sex differences and to go in and to take out ovaries of mice and doing all that it's it was quite intensive work i can't even imagine how small that would have to work yeah it's pretty incredible the techniques people have um have established for us researchers but um yeah so it's like not only are we trying to fit this long-term disease into a small mouse model trying to fit that within a reasonable time scale for graduate students or researchers to do it's always a battle against time But from identifying that this mouse model showed the symptoms of Huntington's disease fairly accurately, we moved into looking at the pathology to see if, um, just to go in and dissect the brain and to see if what we see and what we know occurs in brains of Huntington's patients, if this is occurring in this mouse model. We did uh, what's called in vivo calcium imaging, in which we implanted an electrode into the cortex of a Huntington's mouse and a wild type mouse. And then we put a little um, microscope into the striatum of the brain. And so the striatum is kind of the area that is first affected in Huntington's disease. And that's because the cells that live in that area typically have a high um, expression of Huntington protein. So thus in Huntington's disease, it has a high expression of the mutated protein. And so we wanted to see how cells were talking to each other in the brain. And so we would stimulate the cortex and then um, take a reading from the striatum because we want to look at motor circuits in the brain. And so we saw that the cells in the striatum of Huntington's mice were pretty much overactive. They, their response uh, to the stimulation from the cortex was extremely excessive. And so this was really abnormal. And so we kind of wondered, why was that happening? What's the cause of this overactivity? And so we looked at this protein called GLT-1, which is a glutamate transporter. Um, so when cells talk to each other, they send transmitters. And one of them is called glutamate. And that is what we call an excitatory message. In healthy brains, GLT-1 is found on the certain cell type called astrocytes. Astrocytes kind of monitor around the brain, just clearing up excessive junk or just like housekeeping. They just kind of make sure the 
environment around the neurons are healthy and go around and monitor things, um, make sure there's not too much of one ion. And typically, astrocytes can kind of clear out any excessive glutamate that's floating around through GLT-1. And so in unhealthy brains, there's less GLT-1 on these astrocytes. And so thus, there's more glutamate floating around and able to activate cells. And so I went in and looked at the levels of GLT-1 in my Huntington's mice. And I did find that there was a large decrease of GLT-1 in these Huntington's mice. And so that would be one possibility to explain why the cells in the striatum of the Huntington's mice are responding so excessively. There's just so much of this excitatory uh, message coming through. That was really exciting to see. There's been other current literature showing that um, problems in astrocytes are really leading to these problems in synaptic plasticity that we see in Huntington's disease. Is there any way that that presents a drug target, possibly? Yeah. So the laboratory that I was in, we specialize in studying cannabinoids and endogenous cannabinoids. So these are cannabinoids that are actually made in our own bodies already. They all act on similar receptors in the body. And the most prominent one of this, um, what we call the endocannabinoid signaling system, is the cannabinoid type 1 receptor. I know, really exciting name. (laughs) But um, so this receptor, CB1, is highly expressed in the brain. Um, It has a central role in many parts of the nervous system. Um, And so it's been a very attractive target for therapeutic development from cancer to obesity to pain. And so the link between Huntington's and cannabinoid system is that CB1 receptors are reduced in Huntington's disease. So they have done PET imaging scans of human HD patients at different stages of the disease. And during the early stages of the disease, CB1 receptors are drastically downregulated. And so they're drastically at lower levels than what's normal. Knowing all of the different um, roles that CB1 and the cannabinoid system play in throughout the whole body and in other diseases, in a lot of different other diseases, my lab and other labs were interested to see if we can use the cannabinoid system to treat Huntington's disease symptoms. And so there was a study in 2010 that actually did daily treatments of THC in a mouse model to see if it could save their motor and um, locomotor symptoms. And so they did see that it did improve these Huntington's mice, um, their motor abilities and their locomotor abilities. And so this was really promising because it shows the neuroprotective potential of the cannabinoid system. But of course, with THC, we know that there's a lot of other side effects in using THC regularly. And so this is kind of the big problem with using cannabinoid drugs to treat uh, diseases. And so we wanted to look at harnessing the endogenous system, like the system that's already in place and in your body to elicit those neuroprotective abilities of the system. Once we had established a mouse model of Huntington's disease that 
replicated the symptoms uh, fairly well, that had a short lifespan, um, that had neurological abnormalities. The next step was to take this model and then to take a possible new cannabinoid-based drug target to see if we were able to alleviate symptoms and also rescue some of the neuropathological abnormalities that we had seen. And so we conducted some studies in which we targeted a certain enzyme called ABHD6. Quite a mouthful. When endogenous cannabinoids or THC binds to this cannabinoid type 1 receptor, one of the major functions that CB1 has is to prevent further neurotransmitter release. And so we call this retrograde signaling. And so remember how there's excessive glutamate in these Huntington's mice because possibly GLT-1 is not able to clear out that excessive glutamate. And so one way to combat that problem is then maybe just have the cells not release so much glutamate. And so one way to do that is to activate CB1. And so we decided to target an enzyme that typically breaks down some endogenous cannabinoids that would increase the amount of endogenous cannabinoids in the brain. And then you could bind and activate more CD1 and thus release less glutamate. I'm picturing it more kind of like plumbing that you put a plug in there and stop it all up. Yeah, actually, I've never thought of that. But yeah, that's it's <laughs> like when you have an excessive leak of water, you know, you can go back up the pipe and plug that up there. Yeah, I've been playing a lot of Mario in the last couple of days. So that's <laughs> why I'm stuck on the plumbing metaphor. here. That's funny. I really never thought of that. It's always a challenge trying to explain details about molecular mechanisms without diagrams to non-scientists or like just my friends and family and I've never thought of a good analogy but that's I might use that one now. <laughs> is there a timeline for that research is there work on the horizon that's coming up or is there anything else in the meantime that if people want to know more about this work coming from you or maybe from other labs that you would like to elevate yeah so we recently published exciting results showing treatment with this new generation of ABHD6 inhibitor was able to relieve motor symptoms in this mouse model. And we know that treatment with this enzyme inhibitor does not cause the common side effects that other cannabinoid-based drugs can elicit, like getting them high or dependent. And we're really excited to share these results and to see where research could take off from there. If there was one thing that you would want someone to take away from this, especially if they have their lives affected in any which way by a neurodegenerative disease or by Huntington specifically, is there any takeaway that you'd like to leave them with? I would say even for diseases that have been known for centuries, like back in the 1800s, there are constant new discoveries that are happening all the time. And with more accurate animal models, like in the study that I've done, we can study new therapies to treat and possibly cure neurological disorders. We can also find treatment from non-traditional pathways, such as the increasing interest in cannabinoid-based therapies over the past couple of decades. So if we can harness the therapeutic potential of the signaling system to treat neurodegenerative diseases like Huntington's disease, 
we can take away that negative stigma of cannabinoid-based therapies and use it appropriately, offering researchers and doctors another tool to combat diseases. 